Those of you who have been listening to this series since the beginning will remember how we first began our adventures. It all started with a challenge from a cranky Holocaust survivor. As a teenager, I had been sent by a teen magazine to write about the newly opened Holocaust Museum in Washington. I had been amazed by how its children's exhibit had brought visitors into the life of an adorable imaginary German-Jewish child and his very American-seeming imaginary life, full of soccer trophies and after-school snacks. At the time, I tried to tell a Holocaust survivor about how well this exhibit helped American children see that Jewish kids who died in the Holocaust were just like them. She shocked me by screaming at me, what if they weren't just like them? Would it have been okay to murder them if they weren't just like them? The purpose of those Holocaust museums and memorials, of course, was to inoculate the American public against anti-Semitism by convincing them that Jews who had been murdered were just like them. In the generations since then, American Jews have watched a different reality unfold, which is at the very least bewildering. In the past 30 years, major cities around the United States have installed permanent Holocaust memorials, and many states have imposed mandatory Holocaust curricula required for school children. There appears to be a vast public respect for dead Jews. Strangely though, this reverence for dead Jews has been accompanied by an undeniable rising tide of anti-Semitism here in the United States. There have been some high-profile violent attacks against American Jewish communities in recent years, but there's also something else going on that's much harder to talk about. I'm referring to a more subtle form of dismissing and shaming that often appears whenever American Jews dare to publicly express, say, a Jewish religious belief or practice, or an opinion about Israel. Even saying Shabbat Shalom on TikTok seems to be provocative enough to summon an army of trolls. This is happening not only after decades of Holocaust education, but also after decades of nationwide educational resources devoted specifically to combating bigotry. How did we get here? It's easy to blame the internet and the overall collapse of social institutions and civility and call it a day. But I don't think that's the whole answer. I think there's a certain fatal flaw in the way that Jews have been permitted to express their identities in non-Jewish societies, which reveals the failure of these societies to truly accept difference. And I think that flaw has been there for a very long time. Today, we're going to rewind back to 1947 to a wildly popular and wildly effective post-war movie that schooled a generation of Americans in how not to be anti-Semites. Then we're going to go back even earlier to a bizarre bargain struck in 1806 between Jews and the non-Jewish world. Both of those moments reveal a profound and usually unarticulated compromise that still shapes the way many American Jews live today. Let's call it what Hollywood called it back then, the Gentleman's Agreement. I'm Dara Horn, and this 
is Adventures with Dead Jews. Gentleman's Agreement is the title of a wildly successful 1947 movie that won multiple Academy Awards, including Best Director and Best Picture. It stars Gregory Peck as a dashing young journalist named Philip Schuyler Green, who moves from California to New York City to work for a high-end magazine. Phil is crushed when his editor gives him his first assignment, a series of articles about anti-Semitism. Phil thinks this sounds like a total drag, but his editor wants him to think outside the box. I've got 18 hacks on this magazine who can do this series with their left hands chuck full of facts, figures, and research. Use your head. Go right to the source. I want some angle, some compelling lead, some dramatic device to humanize it so that it gets read. Oh, you don't want much. You just want the moon. With parsley. Suggestion? There's a bigger thing to do than to go after the crackpot story. It's been done plenty. It's the wider spread of it that I want to get at. To Phil, this seems like the most boring assignment on the planet. And who can blame him? Anti-Semitism is pretty much the opposite of news. I'm bored with the whole thing. I've tried everything. Anti-Semitism and prisoners, labor professions, it's all there, all right, but I can't make it give. I've tried everything separately and together. Every time I think I'm getting on the edge of something good, I go into it a little deeper and it turns into the same old drool of statistics and protest. It's like beating your head against a concrete wall. That's when Phil comes up with his genius idea. I got it. I lead the idea, the angle. This is the way. It's the only way. I'll be Jewish. Yes, Phil's genius idea is to go undercover as a Jew. Suspense. Will Gregory Peck posing as a Jew affect what people think of him? Spoiler alert, it does. All I gotta do is say it. Nobody knows me around here. I can just say it. I can live it myself for six weeks, eight weeks, nine months, no matter how long it takes. I even got the title. I was Jewish for six months. If this idea sounds cringeworthy, that's pretty much how everyone in the movie feels about it, too. Because Phil then does what no Jew in America in the 1940s would ever have done, which is to announce at every opportunity that he is Jewish to see how people react. Well, I feel pretty hot about it. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that I'm Jewish myself. Let's just say they don't react well. Suddenly, Phil finds himself dealing with what the cool kids call microaggressions. And some macroaggressions, too. For goodness sake, Green, don't get me wrong. Why, some of my best friends... I know, dear, and some of your other best friends are Methodists, but you never bother to say it. Is your hotel restricted? Would you excuse me a moment, please? How do you do, Mr. Green? How do you do? In answer to your question, may I inquire, are you? Uh, that is, uh, do you follow the Hebrew religion yourself? Or is it that you just want to make sure? I've asked a simple question. I'd like to have a simple answer. Well, you see, we do have a very high-class clientele, and, uh, well, naturally. Then you do restrict your guests to Gentiles. Well, I would say that, Mr. Green. But in any event, there seems to be some mistake, because we don't have a free room in the entire hotel. Phil's fiancée, Kathy, is in on Phil's plan, but she is not a fan of this charade. 
especially when Phil insists on staying in character when meeting her waspy family in Connecticut. But Phil, you're not Jewish. It'd just ruin the party for Jane if she had problems with it. Eventually, Phil's adorable child gets bullied at his new school, and Phil's fiance reveals her true anti-Semitic colors. They call me a dirty Jew, and I think it's nice. Darling, it's not true. It's not true. You're no more Jewish than I am. It's just a horrible mistake. Gregory Peck rides that high horse all the way to the movie's Hollywood ending. Dashing leading man that he is, he convinces his darling fiance not to be a bigot after all, so they can live happily ever after. His big-hearted mom gives a big-hearted speech about the wonders of tolerance. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Phil, if it turned out to be everybody's century? When people all over the world, free people, found a way to live together. I'd like to be around to see some of that. And see it. out some stuff, but you get the idea. Most people remember the actor Gregory Peck for his role in the 1962 film To Kill a Mockingbird. For those of you who slept through ninth grade, that's the one where he plays Atticus Finch, the white lawyer who defends a black man against a bogus rape charge in a racist Alabama town. The thing is, Peck's role in Gentleman's Agreement is almost exactly the same as his role as Atticus Finch except younger and sexier. In both movies, he plays an enlightened, widowed American intellectual trying to teach his kid how not to be a bigot. In both movies, he performs what we discussed in our episode about Schindler's List. That is, he's the white savior who swoops in to rescue a suffering minority from other people's intolerance. Both movies have an after-school special quality to them the deeply self-righteous vibe of Hollywood preaching to the choir. There's been some high talk around town to the effect that I shouldn't do much about defending this man. If you shouldn't be defending him, then why are you doing it? For a number of reasons. The main one is that if I didn't, I couldn't hold my head up in town. I couldn't even tell you or Jim not to do something again. Movies like these feel almost unbearably corny today, but they're part of a long tradition of social protest literature. And as hard as it is to believe now, they had an enormous effect on the public. To appreciate this movie's effect, you need to appreciate the absolutely pervasive nature of anti-Semitism in 1940s America and the atmosphere that this movie and its makers were fighting against. Today in the United States, we talk about anti-Semitic incidents. But 80 years ago, it wasn't about incidents. It was about Jews not being able to get a job or find an apartment or go to professional school or stay in a hotel. Almost every American Jew over the age of 70 can tell you a story like this. It was so normal that no one even thought about it which is why this movie was such a big deal. American Jews did a lot of activist work to change that situation. But movies like this one helped shift public opinion by making anti-Semitism look anti-American. 
Yeah, by chance, you mean that we haven't one secretary named Finkelstein or Cohn in the city of New York? Come off it, Jordan. It's detestable, but that's the way it is. It's even worse in New Canaan. There, nobody can sell or rent to a Jew. And even in Darien, where Jane's house is and my house is, there's sort of a gentleman's agreement when you're... Gentleman's? They're persistent little traitors to everything that this country stands for and stands on, and you have to fight them. Not just for the poor, poor Jews, as Dave says, but for everything this country stands for. We only need to do a bit more digging to see the extra layer behind the reality that the movie exposes, which begins with how hard it was to get this movie made. Hollywood has always been a famously Jewish industry, which is itself a result of American anti-Semitism. Starting in the 1920s, Jewish writers who couldn't get jobs in the more prestigious industries of publishing or journalism often wound up in Hollywood. That's because the movies were considered lowbrow and vulgar and therefore open to Jews. But the Jews in Hollywood in the 1940s knew their audience. When the screenplay for Gentleman's Agreement made the rounds, no Jewish studio executive wanted to touch it. Instead, it was picked up by the non-Jewish director, Elia Kazan, and the non-Jewish producer, Daryl Zanuck. Zanuck was mainly drawn to it because he identified with the main character. Zanuck had recently been turned away from a Los Angeles country club because they thought he was Jewish. Once the script was sold, it was equally hard to find anyone who was willing to play the lead. Cary Grant turned it down. Gregory Peck only said yes against his agent's advice. Bad advice, as it turned out. The movie went on to win multiple Oscars and was the biggest box office hit of the year. After that, things went very, very well for Gregory Peck. The same cannot be said of the movie's only Jewish actor, John Garfield, who plays Phil's Jewish friend, Dave. You're not insulated yet, Phil. It's new every time, so the impact must be quite a business on you. You mean you get indifferent to it in time? No, but you're concentrating a lifetime thing into a few weeks. You're making the thing happen every day, going out to meet it. The facts are no different, Phil. It just telescopes it. it. Makes it hurt more. After the movie's success, the actors and creators were hauled in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee for their suspected communist ties. This was the beginning of the infamous Hollywood blacklist. Of the people involved in Gentlemen's Agreement, only John Garfield, whose real name was Jacob Garfinkel, was called before the committee twice. Unlike others, he was asked not only to name names, but also to incriminate his own wife. He refused and also categorically denied being a communist. He then became the only person involved in this film who wound up unable to ever work again. Unlike, say, the director Ilya Kazan, who infamously named names and went on to 20 more years of success. The stress from all this probably contributed to the heart attack that killed John Garfield a year and a half later at 39 years old. But the weird reality surrounding the movie actually starts with a woman named Laura Hobson, who wrote the best-selling novel on which the movie was based. Here to help us understand it is the historian Rachel Gordon, who's working on a biography of Hobson. I'm Rachel Gordon, um, and I teach at the University of Florida in the Department of Religion and the Center for Jewish Studies, where I'm the Shorstein Fellow in American Jewish Culture. 
and I've been uh, researching and writing about gentlemen's agreement for years now. Gordon sees gentlemen's agreement as not only a turning point in anti-Semitism in America, but also an illustration of how our understanding of tolerance has changed. It's a novel and a film that comes up in American studies a lot. Then I got the movie, found it really interesting and funny, you know, because it's very dated in very 1940s. I, I show it to undergrads now all the time. And there's there's always certain scenes that they laugh at, which we can be sure they did not intend at the time to be hilarious, but they look that way today. Gentleman's Agreement was based on a novel that had gone viral the previous year when it was published in Cosmopolitan magazine. It became the number one bestseller of its time, selling well over a million and a half copies. This massive success was the creation of the writer Laura Z. Hobson. In Hobson's life, we can see the reality underneath the charming pieties of Gregory Peck, because Hobson herself was actually doing the inverse of what Gregory Peck's character does in Gentleman's Agreement. In subtle but important ways, she was also pretending to be someone she wasn't. And that was the key to her success. We can't tell from that name, and I didn't know either, you know, was she Jewish? Hobson doesn't necessarily sound Jewish. And looking into her right away, it was interesting to find out that her Z, which came from Zemetkin, showed that her father was Michael Zemetkin, one of the founding editors of the Jewish Daily Forward. And her mother, it turned out, wrote a woman's column for another Yiddish paper, Der Tog. Laura Hobson, nay Zemetkin, daughter of two Yiddish writers, never used the name Zemetkin. She first published under the name Laura Mount. Prior to that, she used her mother's maiden name, the less Jewish-sounding name Keen. She was briefly married to a non-Jewish man named Hobson, but she then continued publishing under that name for decades. Lest you blame this on the pieties of the era, let me point out that Laura Hobson was no conformist. As a single woman in the 1940s, she adopted a child, which at the time was unheard of. A few years later, still unmarried, she gave birth to another child under a fake name and then legally adopted him. So this was not someone who blindly followed social conventions. But Laura Z was highly savvy about what worked and what didn't for an American Jewish writer. Calling herself Laura Keen, Laura Mount, and Laura Hobson instead of Laura Zemetkin helped her achieve a wildly successful career. To me, what this raises is the fact that there's a real spectrum of passing. And I consider what Hobson to have done is passive passing, which I think is something actually many, many folks still do today, which is she never denied it when asked. And when she was asked for biographical information, she'd always say her parents were Russian Jewish. She learned early, I think it's she's a teenager when she first starts using her mother's maiden name, which is Keen, to get summer jobs or you know, jobs for after school. And she even before that, in school, she's noticing that in public school, her last name, Zemetkin, gets a bad reaction. And it's just a kind of smart kid realizing, huh, my name Zemetkin gets me a little teased. The teacher has this whole to-do about how she can't pronounce it. And it occurs to her to use her mother's maiden name. And she writes as a teenager about how she feels nicer for doing that because she's not causing this whole kind of disruption. Today, we'd say that Hobson was her Starbucks name. 
But obviously, it is more insidious than that. In my book, People Love Dead Jews, I explore the myth of Ellis Island, the convenient and enduring legend that Ellis Island immigration officers accidentally changed Jewish immigrants' names to less Jewish-sounding ones. This was a mythology created by American Jews for their descendants. In reality, American Jews themselves, like other immigrants looking to integrate, went to court and legally changed their own names in order to avoid American anti-Semitism, often decades after Ellis Island shut down. The story of the bumbling Ellis Island clerk is a lot like the story of the bumbling high school teacher who has mastered calculus but somehow cannot manage to pronounce Zemetkin. Both stories are much more pleasant than the reality hiding behind them. That reality is more like what Gregory Peck's character encounters, as his Jewish secretary explains when she tells him how she managed to get her job at Smith's Weekly, the magazine where they both work. Of course, you know that it will be yes to the Greens and no to the Greenbergs. Sure, but I want it for the record. Now, if your name was Saul Green or Irving or something like that, you wouldn't have to go to all this bother. I changed mine, did you? Oh, Green's always been my name. What's yours? Wilowski. Estelle Wilowski. And I just couldn't take it. About applications, I mean. So, one day, I wrote the same firm two letters. Same as you're doing now. I sent the Elaine Wales one after they'd said there were no openings to my first one. I got the job all right. But there's another gentleman's agreement built into gentleman's agreement that goes much deeper than the country club anti-Semitism that the movie exposes. And it also goes much deeper than the subtle choices Laura Z. Hobson made about her own name. That deeper gentleman's agreement is one that the movie keeps entirely intact. And in many ways, we're still living with it today. It's about how the movie defines what it means to be an American Jew and the outer limits of its idea of acceptance. There's a joke that's often told about Gentleman's Agreement. A stagehand who was working on the movie told Moss Hart, who was the screenwriter, that he he really loved the movie and thought it had a wonderful moral and Moss Hart is pleased and just kind of wondering, oh, so what did you think the moral was? And the stagehand said, well, I learned that you should never be mean to a Jew because he may turn out to be a Gentile. That joke puts it bluntly. But the movie puts it even more bluntly. Because what's missing from this movie are actual Jews doing anything even remotely Jewish or even explaining what being Jewish means at all. You know, when we watch Gentlemen's Agreement today, we are reminded of Hobson's very limited view of tolerance. And reviewers noticed that at the time, Diana Trilling was writing in Commentary Magazine, where are the religious Jews in this movie? There's no one who, you know, wears a kippah or speaks a Jewish language. You finish Gentlemen's Agreement with no more understanding of Judaism than when you started. Gordon argues that after World War II, American Jews chose a particular strategy of presenting themselves solely as members of a religion, and specifically, members of a religion that wasn't all that different from Christianity. We see this effort to define Jews as a religion in contrast to the way that the Nazis were defining Jews as a race. Basically, if they're the kind of Jew who could pass as a Gregory Peck kind of person, they are acceptable. Or, we might say, agreeable. 
This idea was enacted by Hobson herself after the success of her book. When the newly formed Jewish Book Council offered her the National Jewish Book Award for her novel Gentleman's Agreement, she loudly turned it down, declaring that, of course, she was not a Jewish writer. She was an American writer. This same philosophy is also clearly articulated just 10 minutes into the movie. There's a very pedantic scene at the breakfast table between Phil and his son, where Gregory Peck schools his kid about what Jews are. Oh, that's where uh, some people don't like other people just because they're Jews. Hmm. Why? Are they bad? Oh, some are, sure. Some are. It's like everybody else. What are Jews, anyway? I mean, exactly. You remember last week when you asked me about that big church? Sure. I told you there were lots of different churches? Yeah. Well, the people who go to that particular church are called Catholics, see? And there are people who go to other churches, and they're called Protestants. And there are others who go to still different ones, and they're called Jews. And why don't some people like those? Some people hate Catholics, and some some hate Jews. And no one hates us because we're Americans? Well, no, no, that's, uh, that's another thing again. So you can be an American and a Catholic, or an American and a Protestant, or an American and a Jew. Reasonable enough, right? Let's see what else Dad has to say. One thing's your country, see, like America, or France, or Germany, or Russia, all the countries. But the other thing is religion, like the Jewish, or the Catholic, or the Protestant religion. See, that hasn't anything to do with the flag, or the uniform, or the airplanes. You got it? Yep. Well, don't ever get mixed up on that. I got it. Some people are mixed up. Who might be mixed up about that? I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Dad's not talking about Italian-Americans being too attached to the Pope in Rome. This movie came out just a few months before the UN voted to partition the British Mandate of Palestine into an Arab state and a Jewish state. Later in the movie, we meet a Jewish physicist who's clearly a stand-in for Albert Einstein. And he provides the movie's own muddled and dismissive view of Zionism. The real Einstein was a passionate and outspoken supporter of the Zionist cause. But in this movie, the world-renowned Jewish physicist distinguishes himself by being even more clueless about Jewish identity than Gregory Peck. Palestine, for instance, Zionism. Palestine is a refuge, or Zionism is a movement for a Jewish state. The confusion between the two more than anything. If we agree there's confusion, we can talk. We scientists love confusion. But right now, I'm starting on a new crusade of my own. You see, my young friends, I have no religion, so I'm not Jewish by religion. Further, I'm a scientist, so I must rely on science, which tells me I'm not Jewish by race, since there's no such thing as a distinct Jewish race. There's not even such a thing as a Jewish type. Well, my crusade will have a certain charm. I will simply go forth and state flatly I'm not a Jew. Or with my face, that becomes not an evasion, but a new principle. A scientific <laughs> principle. For a scientific age. Precisely. There must be millions of people nowadays who are religious only in the vaguest sense. I've often wondered why the Jewish ones among them still go on calling themselves Jews. Can you guess why, Mr. Green? No, no but I'd like to know. Because the world still makes it an advantage not to be one. Thus, for many of us, it becomes a matter of pride to go on calling ourselves Jews. So you see, I will have to abandon my crusade before it begins. Only if there were no anti-Semites can I go on with it. This is a view of Jewish identity in which it has no content at all, other than persecution by others. It is an incredibly depressing erasure of 
3,000 years of Jewish civilization. But apparently, that's what it takes to get Gregory Peck into the country club of his choice. The idea that Jewish identity is about going to a different kind of church is particularly bizarre coming from Laura Hobson, who did not practice any form of religion at all. So why does Hobson, in Gentleman's Agreement, define Jewishness as a religion when she herself was so secular? The most famous place this happens is in the breakfast scene. And he reminds Tommy, remember when we walked by that church the other day? Well, Jews go to a different kind of church. So the question is, why does she do that when she's so secular herself? Well, I think it's her pragmatism and it's her understanding that in post-World War II America, this is now the acceptable way for Jews to be different and for Jews to claim their Jewish identity. The weirdest thing about that breakfast scene, though, isn't how it reflected the particular worldview of Laura Z. Hobson or even how it reflected the particular strategy of a generation of post-war American Jews who were hoping for acceptance from their neighbors by demonstrating their equally valid Cold War faith in God. The weirdest thing is that everything Gregory Peck says in that scene can be traced back to 150 years earlier in France when Napoleon decided to reconvene the Sanhedrin the ancient rabbinic high court of Israel that had not existed for almost 2,000 years. Perhaps you're wondering why the French dictator Napoleon, who at the time was kind of busy conquering Europe, would want to take time out from burning through Prussia to assemble a 2,000-year-old rabbinic court. Or perhaps you're wondering why the agenda of the French dictator Napoleon would overlap with the feel-good mission of Gregory Peck. Well, the reason both of those things sound absolutely nuts is that both of those things are absolutely nuts. But we are going to dive right into that insanity because it's the key to understanding the gentleman's agreement between Jews and non-Jewish society that's still haunting us today. In 1806, Jews struck a deal with Napoleon that was intended to secure the future of Jews in Europe. The deal was this. Jews would receive full rights and equality as citizens of the French Empire, so long as being Jewish was confined to a religion, and so long as that religion was confined to what non-Jewish European governments could manage and approve. This all came about in a way that normal people will find extremely strange, but listeners to this podcast will find depressingly familiar. Napoleon had apparently heard that Jews were, wait for it, evil usurers who were hell-bent on destroying Christendom, blah, 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 blah. Which is about as boring as Gregory Peck said it was. I'm bored with the whole thing. Bored with myself, as a matter of fact. But the French Revolution had produced several sincere reformers who insisted on giving Jews equality as citizens of the Republic. On paper, the revolution officially emancipated the Jews. The revolution had also officially freed the serfs. In the eastern French province of Alsace, those newly freed serfs decided to become landowners for the very first time by borrowing cash from newly freed Jews. A few years later, after defaulting on their loans, 
these peasants took up two new hobbies. First, gathering in angry mobs to torch Jewish homes. And second, petitioning the government to get rid of the evil usurious Jews who were trying to destroy Christendom. Here's the historian Jonathan Helfond, professor emeritus of Brooklyn College, to help guide us through this morass. Napoleon, coming back from his great victory at Austerlitz, goes through Alsace. The farmers come and meet him. They complain bitterly about the Jews. And Napoleon goes back to Paris, gives it some thought, and takes action. Napoleon, like Gregory Peck's character Phil, wanted to think outside the box. So, like Phil, he decided to do something completely bonkers. His bonkers idea was to gather what he called an assembly of notables made up of Jews from all over his empire and ask them whether they were trying to destroy Christendom. He sets in motion the convening of an assembly of notables. The purpose of it in highfalutin French was the amelioration of the condition of the Jews. He wanted them to uh, engage in, quote, honest industry and to uh, have signs or sentiments of civil morality. It's a kind of process that later is called in French regeneration to regenerate their decent human abilities and capacities. Yes, that's right. After seizing power, conquering Europe, massacring thousands of people in Spain and Germany, and also gassing tens of thousands of Haitians with sulfur dioxide in the holds of ships, Napoleon was ready to school the Jews on how to be decent human beings. But this gathering of Jews wasn't really about the Jews' morality. And it wasn't about those angry peasants either. As Helfond explained to me, it was about a larger problem that the Jews in Europe presented to emerging nation states. European powers, and particularly, as I said, France, were faced with a problem. What to do with the Jews? Up until that point in history, in European history, the Jews had a clear place in society. There was the government, uh, there was the feudal system in some fashion, and then the Jews stood outside of that, and they were a corporate entity that owed allegiance to some kind of state or noble, king or duke, whatever, and the duke dealt with them as a corporate entity, not as individuals. They paid their taxes and they had internal self-government. Jewish communities were treated and taxed as a group, and that group was considered the property of local nobles. The Jews, meanwhile, ran their own communities without much interference. But with the centralization of nation-states in Europe, governments soon saw the downsides of treating Jews this way. For one thing, it meant leaving money on the table. The government now wanted to control everything. No more corporate entities running around and being alternative sources of authority to the authority of the king. He wanted to control everything. Things like, for example, great example is wills, inheritances. That's where you get the money, as we're learning. So that can no longer be in private hands. The chance to collect taxes on some dead Jew's estate was a practical illustration of the deeper issue. If you're Napoleon, you don't want the Jews to be loyal to some local duke or to laws other than yours when they could be loyal to you. King's law should be the law, whereas up until that point, the Jewish community ran by Jewish law. So what do you do now? 
How do you deal with them? Do you just continue letting them live separately from the state or not? The revolution makes it more complicated by emancipating them. But what are we going to do with them now? They're emancipated. They're citizens. If they're citizens, don't they have to follow, in Napoleon's case, the Code Civil that he just passed? They can't run around keeping their Jewish law. It's part of this ongoing effort to define the place of Jews and to make them, in very nice enlightenment terms, happier and more useful in France. So Napoleon's Assembly of Notables was convened. These Jewish representatives, which included rabbis and community leaders from all over France, Germany, and Italy, gathered in City Hall in Paris to answer Napoleon's quiz questions about Judaism. The government appoints a group of over 100 notables, and they get this list of 12 questions, some of which are very puzzling and some of which are quite obvious. And they question Jewish patriotism, uh, the nature of Jewish law, the nature of Jewish economic life. It was kind of a high-stakes game show situation. If the Jews got the answers right, they would win the grand prize of being allowed to live in Europe as equal citizens. If they got them wrong, angry mobs of peasants were cordially invited to eat them alive. The questions Napoleon wanted answered weren't much harder than the ones Tommy asks Gregory Peck at the breakfast table. Did the Jews believe in polygamy, for instance? Not for the past eight centuries, no. Did Jews believe in divorce? Yes. By Jewish law, were Jews permitted to marry Christians? That one was trickier, but every rabbi there knew that they were on a game show. So the official answer was yes. Did Jewish law require that the Jews commit usury and hang those righteous Christian peasants out to dry? Nope. Did the Jews regard Frenchmen as their brothers and France as their country? Yes and yes. And would the Jews defend France as their country? The rabbis all stood up and shouted out, to the death. The Jews passed the test, but they had not yet won the game. Napoleon isn't satisfied by this opinion. He wants it to become Jewish law or doctrine. And that's why he convenes the Grand Sanhedrin, evoking the ancient court that sat in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. And in September of 1806, there's a call for this rabbinic assembly or Sanhedrin to consider these answers that had been prepared it would become an authoritative body of Jewish law, Jewish religious doctrine. Napoleon had just dealt with a similar situation with the Pope and the Catholic Church. Apparently, he thought that Jews, like Catholics, would be impressed by a high-end corgi con and therefore take seriously whatever commitments this magical Sanhedrin declared. He had clearly never met a Jew before. Like most Jewish meetings, this one ended with a bunch of bland statements that didn't mean much and that almost no one agreed with or followed ever again. It didn't mean much to Napoleon either, who wound up revoking the Jews' civil rights anyway. This whole Sanhedrin episode did succeed in one thing, which was to convince the Jews that their best bet to be accepted was to make sure their religion had an official stamp of approval from whatever non-Jews were in charge. 
Jews were clearly unacceptable as a corporate entity or as a community or as a people or as a nation or to use a newer term as an ethnic group. But apparently Jews were awesome if they were simply Frenchmen who, you know, went to a different kind of church. That was the gentleman's agreement that made possible the emancipation of the Jews. The weird thing is, by the time Gregory Peck was posing as a Jew, the real Jews had clearly lost this particular high-stakes game with lethal results. The most recent spectacular failure of this Napoleonic agreement, of course, was the Holocaust, during which the pan-European Jew-eating murder machine did not make exceptions for agreeable Jews who went to a different kind of church and dressed like Gregory Peck. If this wasn't obvious, one need only watch a different movie from just seven years earlier, Lenny Riefenstahl's Nazi propaganda film, The Eternal Jew. She took about half a dozen Jews from the Ludge ghetto with their beards and side locks, and she picked people who had particularly hooked noses and photographed them to emphasize them. And this was a stereotypical Jew. Then she took the same six people, shaved their beards, put them in evening dress, and showed them with cigars in a kind of celebratory scene. And the point being made was that the Jew remains the wicked, dangerous, awful Jew, whether he is separatist or whether he is integrated. Well, I mean, just let them get one wrong one in here and it'll come out of us. It's no fun being the fall guy for the kikey ones. But that wasn't the half of it, or the half century of it. In fact, this concept of Jews who dressed like Gregory Peck being totally acceptable had already spectacularly failed in France 50 years earlier, with the 1890s debacle known as the Dreyfus Affair. Alfred Dreyfus, a Jew who was almost as dapper and noble as Gregory Peck, was a captain in the French army on the French general staff when he was accused of selling military secrets to the Germans. He was stripped of his military honors in a public ceremony celebrated by wildly anti-Semitic crowds. The thing about Dreyfus is that he had been living the ideal of the assimilated Jew. He regarded himself exclusively as a Frenchman and was following the gentleman's agreement to the letter. It did not matter. The Dreyfus affair showed that even an integrated Jew would not be welcome necessarily in society, and nobody was more integrated than Dreyfus. This fantastic betrayal of the gentleman's agreement inspired a young reporter in the crowd named Theodore Herzl to realize that the Jews, no matter how assimilated they became, would never be welcome in Europe. Herzl used this realization to launch the modern political version of what we now call the Zionist movement. Dreyfus himself, meanwhile, was sent off to a prison colony on Devil's Island off the coast of South America, where he spent four years in solitary confinement and was manacled to his cot every night. He was exonerated years later, but the damage had been done. Dreyfus died in 1935, just a few years too early to join his wife on her deportation to Auschwitz. In a sense, that betrayal of the ideal of assimilation never really ended. 
There was no denouement to the Dreyfus affair. When they wanted to put up a statue of Dreyfus back in the 70s, no place wanted to take it. And one of the authors of a very good book on Dreyfus has a story at the end of the book where he's driving in a taxi, he's in France, driving with Dreyfus's daughter or granddaughter, and he starts asking her a question about, wasn't there a statue or a memorial for Dreyfus here in the city? And she turns to him and she tells him to be quiet. The driver is listening. Sometimes I think the driver is still listening. Jews are still asked again and again to erase themselves and their 3,000-year history as much as possible in order to be worthy of public respect. The moral of gentlemen's agreement and of all those decades of education about the Holocaust and against intolerance really is just like that old joke about the movie that people should be nice to Jews because they might turn out to be Gentiles. More diplomatically stated, the motivation behind all this anti-bigotry education is that we shouldn't be mean to Jews because Jews are just like everybody else. But as that cranky old Holocaust survivor once demanded of me, what if Jews aren't just like everybody else? Would it be okay to hate and ostracize and belittle and dismiss and shame and murder them if they weren't just like everybody else? That question gets to the heart of the problem, which is the outer limit of diversity. The thing that bothers me about the Gentlemen's Agreement in 2021 is that Jews have spent 3,000 years not being like everybody else. Uncoolness is pretty much Judaism's brand, going all the way back to when the whole ancient world was sacrificing virgins to a Marvel Cinematic Universe of sexy deities, while the Jews, like the losers in the school cafeteria, were worshipping a bossy and unsexy invisible god. Judaism is actually a counterculture that runs through the history of the West. The problem is, if we were to actually learn about the content of that culture and experience, instead of insisting that Jews are just like everybody else, it would ruin a lot of things we thought we knew. Things that make us feel better about ourselves. Things that we teach to children. Here's just one tiny example. When you learned in school about world history, you were probably taught about the importance of the printing press and later the Industrial Revolution in making widespread literacy possible. Before the printing press, they told you, and especially before industrial production, only the clergy and the royalty and the nobles knew how to read. But then, hooray! Technology and cheap production systems finally made mass literacy accessible to the poor. It's a nice story. But if you include Jewish history in world history, it turns out to be a lie. Because Jewish societies had nearly universal male literacy for well over a thousand years before the printing press. Poor Jewish kids in 8th century rural Libya learned how to read. Poor Jewish kids in 14th century urban Italy learned how to read. Poor Jewish kids in 12th century Yemen, in 6th century Babylonia, in 9th century Spain, in 13th century Poland. They all learned how to read. 
Those of you who heard our episode about the Cairo Geniza know how valuable this fact is to scholars today because the records of entire non-Jewish dynasties wound up preserved in a synagogue closet simply because the Jews were actually reusing the paper. It turns out that you can absolutely have a society with mass literacy without advanced technology. Your society just needs to think that reading is important. The same is true for how we think about so many things that are fundamental ideals in the Western world today. Liberty, diversity, critical thinking, and dozens of other concepts that kids in school are told came from something like the Enlightenment, even though they all appear in ancient Jewish sources, in the words of the Hebrew prophets and sages. Judaism is an ever-present counterculture that calls into question so much of what we think about how larger societies work. Curiosity about Jewish history and culture would upend a lot of what we want to believe about world history and make us question a lot of the stories that make us feel good about ourselves. But in a sense, we can't do that because Jews have been taught over centuries that the only way to be accepted by non-Jewish societies is to erase themselves, to let other people tell them how they are allowed to be, to convince their neighbors that they're just like everybody else, to pretend that their culture and tradition is not foundational to broader civilization and also an ongoing challenge to it. We've seen that compromise and erasure in all of the stories we have explored in this series over and over again. That is what that cranky old Holocaust survivor was fighting against. That is the gentleman's agreement. I'd like all of us, Jews and non-Jews, to opt out. I think we can do better. I think we have to. Adventures with Dead Jews is brought to you by Tablet Studios and Soul Shop. It's created and written by me, Dara Horn, and produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia, with help from Quinn Waller. The managing producer is Sara Fredman Ader, and the executive producers are Leah Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnick, Gabby Weinberg, and Dan Luxenberg. We hope you'll rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can join us on our adventures. My new book, People Love Dead Jews, is published by W.W. Norton and is available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook from Recorded Books. I hope you'll check it out. For this episode, special thanks to Rachel Gordon and Jonathan Helfond. You can find more information about their work in the show notes, along with other sources to learn more about the topics in today's show. This is our last episode of the season. Luckily, podcasts are almost as immortal as the Jewish people. So we hope you'll come back and visit any episodes you may have missed and that you'll spread the word and share this season's worth of material with everyone you know. Thank you so much for joining us on this audacious journey into the past. We hope to return in the future with more Adventures with Dead Jews. I feel like I used to argue with that cranky old lady, and now I've become her.